Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. A couple of reports that came across the DCTI desk this week. The first one would be the active exploitation of paper cut, which were two vulnerabilities that were released last month, CVE 2023-27350, which was an unauthenticated RCE impacting all paper cut MF or NG versions 8.0 or later, and CVE 2023-27351, which was an unauthenticated information disclosure flaw that affected paper cut M or NG or sorry MF or NG versions 15.0 or later. What we found was on 19 April Papercut disclosed that these vulnerabilities were being actively exploited in the wild. And reports ended up showing that the primary exploitation was being done by the ransomware operations Lockbit and Clop. This is one of the things that we regularly identify when we talk about attack surface reduction and how to use cyber threat intelligence to help minimize your attack surface by focusing on vulnerabilities that end up getting leveraged by these threat actors, primarily when they're disclosed, how long it takes for these threat actors to then develop a public exploit and then sell that exploit for money as well as to continue their operations out. And this is something that we saw. Paper cuts obviously widely used throughout a lot of organizations. It helps with print archiving. And it's just something that is not normally focused on when people talk about patching and implementations. And so these threat actors found a really great hole that they could then try to exploit and obviously carried on a lot of follow-on attacks using these CVEs and chaining them together. But now a lot of those indicators have been put out and this has obviously accelerated a lot of patching activities in a lot of organizations, but there was an open time for approximately a couple of weeks that these threat actors were able to scan for any vulnerable instances that were out there and then take advantage of that and start putting in their different implants and taking over systems. The second report has to do with a Mac stealer that was being sold on Telegram. It's known as the Atomic Mac OS Stealer or AMOS. And Amos being sold on Telegram for $1,000 a month is a Mac stealer that can obtain keychain passwords, complete system information. It can get files from the desktop or documents folder and can also get the Mac OS password. Obviously, Macintosh is something that's been focused on quite a bit by threat actors, especially since the bragging rights that a lot of Mac users have is how difficult it is to hack. Well, there's been a lot of threat actors that have specifically wanted to focus 
on that to find ways around that and get some of those get those organizations that are either Macintosh or keep a lot of their stuff on Macs. And so this stealer is one one of those undetectable stealers that was found. When this report was released by Cybel Intelligence, when they ran the when they ran the hashes that they had from this stealer, it was completely undetectable in a vendor like Virus Total. And this is a Golang based stealer, so it's obviously able to be manipulated to focus on other things like Windows systems and Linux systems as well. But obviously it focuses primarily on Mac. And so at $1,000 a month, that's a pretty high price tag, but it does show that it was popular enough and that this threat actor was getting a lot of people focused on it and wanting to purchase. And so that price is raised. And that's just for a month and it gives full access to a graphic user interface that they can then use to gain access to systems and likely turn around and sell those accesses on a lot of the dark web forums that we monitor here at Deep Seas. Uh, but that's it for the intelligence briefing for this this week. Back to you, Josh. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, first up, I want to introduce you to a guest here real quick, and then I want to dive into some of the things we noticed at RSA and get into kind of the topic of this episode, which is how do you use partner enablement, how you increase your cyber defense strategies, your ability to deliver, and how to do that and maximize kind of those outcomes. And Mike has been doing that for years. So the first person I want to introduce you to is someone who's been around for a while, Mike Johnson. Mike is currently the Vice President of Partners and Alliances at Deep Seas. His primary focus is to drive mutually successful partnerships with over 30 partners in the robust ecosystem of reseller partners, referral partners, and of course, those technical vendors. Mike learned partner strategies with some of the best channel leaders at organizations such as Cisco Systems, Palo Alto Networks, IBM, HP, and while providing managed services at Global Vars or SIs for a dozen years. He applied what he learned during the partner networks at SIM vendors Logarithm and Securonix, and the SAS DRC provider Pathlock. And now he's led the fast growth pace of our partner network here at Deep Seas. As a Cisco certified network and security expert, he brings a unique mix of technical and advisory skills to the partner enablement he provides. And Mike lives in Cincinnati, Ohio with his wife and his two children. And he has two of those children serving in the United States Air Force. Mike, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Thanks for having me on, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about something I'm very passionate about, which is partnering and partnering in cybersecurity. Awesome. You were on the floor with me at RSA. I noticed a couple different Friends, I wanted to prick your brain here. What was RSA 2023 about? Really fascinating time for us. We rented a boat, if you recall. We wanted to have something where we're trying to have a contest who could get the cheapest living accommodations at RSA. And I found a boat that was on Pier 39 on VRBO and ended up being like $150 a person per night. And we stayed on that boat and I was able to go back and forth to the conference. And I can tell you that whole vision you have, Michael, when you're going to retire and you're going to be in your 60s and you're living on the boat that was just shattered by that first night of sleeping on it at night while the waves are moving the boat into the dock and making noises. <laughs> and there's, there's a sea life making noises during the night and seagulls. And it was just miserable. I got no sleep for two days. 
but it was at least an experience that we had. But Mike, from your perspective for RSA, what were the things that you noticed that, and trends that were important? Uh, the attendance was up from previous years, recently, of course. A lot of activity in and around the conference center in Moscone. The Josh Nicholson passing out his Cybersecurity America podcast business cards was a hit. And that, that just goes to show you that people are hungry to get their message out and to collaborate with others in the industry. Yeah, that was funny. So I took, decided to advertise the show and I said, what well, was a great opportunity to go to RSA every year, but what's a great opportunity to get in front of them, pass out the card, get more attendance, more people watching the videos and, and subscribing. So I thought that was a great opportunity. I just met hundreds of people on the sidelines and, and even found more creative ways to use certain common areas to maximize the effectiveness of the cards. So that really went well. We're going to have a couple different vendors. Mike, we had, what, about a dozen different meetings with some of the biggest technology partners in the ecosystem there, in the cyber ecosystem. What were some of the trends you noticed from those conversations that we had? It seems to be a lot of excitement over over deep seas and the spin out and so forth. But what were some of the things that you noticed? Yes, there was probably... Eight, eight times more time outside of the conference center than in it. I was, we were with executives from our, our vendors that matter, the EDR providers like Sentinel One, Carbon Black. We were in the suite with the SIM vendors like Splunk and Devo, meeting executives, talking strategy around how analytics and data lake matter to the cyber defense mission we all are taking on here and how MDR and having the technical vendor build the car and let us be the driver as the MDR provider. That message really resonated well, especially with a bundled core piece of solutions that we at DeepSeas bring to the table, for example. But yeah, let the vendors focus on building the best platform and then let the experts drive that platform to accomplish the outcomes. It was really resounding well as a message. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of interest in Deep Seas, just knowing that Booz Allen background, how a really highly technical group of people and how they're really focused on on delivering a lot of those outcomes. And those partners, your Zscalers, they were really interested in on how to use that and how we could use their tool sets to, to drive some of these outcomes. Yeah. Now, one of the first meetings we had was with an OT security provider, Nozomi Networks, and we inked a partnership with them. Literally this morning, got the document filed away. That's going to allow a MDR provider and a supplier of OT security to go to market to the mid-market as one of their elite MSP partners. And that's something that doesn't exist today. And it's going to allow our deep skill set to go down market a little bit to the low-end enterprise, to the high-end mid-market with an OT offering to keep those assets secure. Yeah, and that's exciting. And I think what happens is people don't realize, they think of that as a sales play. Oh, that's great. You're able to have channels and sell things more. But it's actually bringing capabilities together for a customer's benefit. When you're able to bring two and three solutions of partners you've worked with, their technology works, it integrates with your stack, your trade crafts, easy to infuse in it. The relationship that works back and forth from service, support, if there's something wrong with the product, you're front and center in front of your customers and you rely on those vendors to be able to have those processes to support you. And how, I can't tell you how many failed incidents that we've had, true cybersecurity incidents, where the customers failed because their partners were not set up right to deliver. There was no 
consolidated approach on what technology platforms are used, what provider, and what would happen in certain situations, and that how it's so critical to have the right technologies delivering the right solutions and outcomes, and it's never going to be just one, and how just picking the wrong one, and I think I guess that's the advantage we've seen when you pick the wrong one and how it just blows up. So what are your thoughts, Mike? It's, I think it's a really important area where you have technical cybersecurity delivery people like myself don't really understand the complexity sometimes of what these partner ecosystems give you and what they don't and what's the benefit until everything blows up. But what's some best practices you've learned? Yeah, thanks, Josh. I think the roadmap to partnership success is pretty clear in my vision. There's a lot of work that goes behind this, but really you need to build the teams and connect the teams that have a partner first mentality. You have to realize that when you partner, you're basically adding an extension to your team and both companies have to have that mindset you got to set some programmatic partner goals and you have to target, vet out and focus on what your ideal partner profile is. That's something our CEO here has challenged me to do. It's Mike, we can't boil the ocean. Define your ideal partner and then recruit and enable those. So, for example, I built a formula, right? I took a, a technical approach to it. I took every possible partner that I know of. It's in in pipeline and I rank them on ability to generate mutual short-term revenue, the ability to generate mutual long-term revenue. What is our portfolio fit? Do they have another MDR provider? Do they need one? Score them on that. And then finally, you score them on their willingness to invest with you. And that investment comes in the form of money or people. And so I've calculated a score. And if you score 3.0 out of 3.0, you're my ideal partner. And I'm going to target and work really hard with you. And then once you've done that, I'll just cover the next four or five things on the ideal partnership success roadmap. And that's when you got to build an incentive program that pays or incents the partners to serve those mutual customers, bring deals to each other, decide on the right product mix with that partner. They offer a lot of things, right? And we offer a lot of things. Where's the gaps? and find those gaps and fill them with each other's services and software. Document an operational racy. This is probably near and dear to your heart as a services leader. Who is responsible for taking the customer call, for booking the order, for enabling the portal? All of those things have a responsibility chart. And when we define a validated threat as the MDR provider, who gets the phone call? Are we calling the partner or are we calling the end user? We can do both. But you have to define that as part of the partnership success criteria. And, and other things happen like co-branding assets and selling tools, training and enabling sales engineers and field sellers, integrating systems like Salesforce and partner portals, and then establish a cadence, set some goals, measure success against those goals, deliver together, always communicate with each other. And if one of you gets something wrong, make it right. That way that partnership continues to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important when you're the end customer, who you're dealing with, your partnerships for your cybersecurity services and how they work together. I've seen where we've had vendors where they're fighting each other. This issue is this one's fault. And that's when this one's issue. You didn't coordinate properly with me. And the entire ability, the delivery model that you're using and what's the partner's so for instance, I, I think it's really important to use the same vendor on some of these services internally and your ability to leverage 
different tools and technologies and so forth. But when you split it up, if I say this portion of the network is going to be monitored by this MDR provider and this portion by this one, if there's an IR in manufacturing, that's a different team. And just that splintered approach to cybersecurity. So you have IR events that are popping off and the staff from the IT side doesn't know about it because the team in the OT side doesn't communicate to them. And they use different vendors. You have different priorities. And it's almost like doing disjointed bipolar cyber. And I think the key to it is how do you use your partners and your vendors to have that joint interest in it? If you go to market with a, a Splunk, for instance, and or a Sentinel One or a Zscaler or something like that, there's this a solid technology behind it, but there's also a partner and support there that when you go to do these bigger deals and your customers relying on two, three aspects, and you got to put a solution together that may include three different partners. And if it's done wrong, this whole thing blows up and you, it, it explodes on you. How have you been so successful in choosing which partners, which not? Is there any of that have a red flag that says, hey, when you're looking for a technology partner to deliver, if they do this and this, run away? Do you have any examples of that? Yeah. So a good example is that you have to hold yourself accountable to things like SLAs for your end customers. And when you miss an SLA, when you call that partner up, do you get an executive person that's going to take hold of that challenge, understand how it happened, commit to you that it won't happen again, and make it right? If that happens, you're probably working with the right partner. I went through a recent example of that. We provide very timely IR services here. And within two hours, we're supposed to stand up the EDR console and be delivering services for the boots on the ground in like an overwatch scenario. If for whatever reason, we don't meet that two-hour timeline, there's a real cost to that, to the partnership of the IR firm, to the end customer who's going through a really bad time in their career, if you can't meet those SLAs. So we are able to do that. If little mistakes happen, but you recover quickly and you have set processes in place, if the partner's willing to do that with you, you're on the right path. Because at the end of the day, my my overarching goal is to deliver client value that does some very important things. One, it's going to strengthen the relationship between all parties involved. Uh, we're going to be different. We're going to provide competitive solutions and we're going to expand opportunity. That's opportunity for them to succeed as a customer, opportunity for more sales if you're one of the partners. And you focus on this by providing a seamless and positive client experience. And you can't do that alone. If you're, if you're trying to do everything that a cyber defense mission needs by yourself, it's just impossible. So you have to partner. So then pick the right partners to provide that seamless, positive client experience. Right. And for you, the, I think vendor lock-in is always a concern, right? If you're using a certain partner and how are you, like what's the up part investment of dealing with one? How do you transition service? How do you execute? Maybe there's some training and so forth. But if I was the director of operations and I knew I had to have multiple services in the, these certain areas, where is the first place to start looking? one? Do you Google search managed services? Where does generally do you look for good cyber partners? Where could, where's a trusted source for them? A great question. I have a new channel account manager on board and I've asked him to start researching as if you were an end user trying to buy an MDR provider and come back to me with the results of what you're finding. And, and his first tact was self-study. He's going out to Google and he's going to type in MDR provider and he's going to read the Gartner reports and the Forrester reports and he's going to Look at the sponsored ads, who's paying for SEO optimization in the MDR space. And he's going to look at it from two different perspectives, right? You've got the 
partners that provide the service directly. That's the deep seas, the Arctic wolves, the East End tires, you know, all of those. And then you've got the ones that resell those solutions. Those are your more downstream cyber boutiques or consultant organizations that just package up and resell that service. So there's literally, if you count all of that, a hundred MDR providers that you can come across. So how do you differentiate them? I think a lot of it comes down to getting out and meeting people at events like RSA or your local B-Sides events or an ISA, get some recommendations, cast a wide net at first, uh, but then start honing in with recommendations from people and definitely evaluate their website yourself. Look at what kind of content they provide. Are they Do they look like someone that's going to try and enable you to make a good decision and provide you the data right there at your own fingertips? That's the best use of your time. And then events like this, a podcast. If I was a CISO or a director in IT security right now, I would be subscribing to several podcasts so I hear what people are saying about them. But I think that was the most interesting part of the whole RSA is how many of these guys in Splunk and Mike, all of them that wanted to be on the podcast and wanted to talk to people. And I think having podcasts and being able to discuss what works, what doesn't, I think is exciting. I think one of the pieces that I'd like to look at, like NSS Labs or something like that's done some performance evaluation on a product. It took a firewall and threw a billion packets through it. This is its performance and, and so forth. Some Unobject- some objective criteria for testing different things. Because you see all the hype, the machine learning this and my AI that, and my AI is smarter than yours and just all this kind of crap. And when you find most of it's not even real or implemented properly, and it you just, where's all the hype? How do you cut through some of that kind of stuff? And I know you have stuff like NSS Labs for firewalls, but how do you have that for vendor solutions? I know some of them that, that have all these capabilities built in find out most of the time it's just uh, more hype. It's more marketing than actual outcomes. And so I like to see some of the SANS conferences, who's talking about different things and what is their experience running them in the, in, in the real world. I agree. There is a lot that goes into building a partnership to deliver, and it's not all about marketing. I think I saw XDR launch from 10 to 15 different vendors at RSA. But yeah. XDR is just three letters uh, that has, that, and we know two of them are detection and response. What the heck is the other X? And people can just define that for themselves. At, at the end of the day, it's not about the terms. It's about the end deliverable. And when you're evaluating your partners, you want to make sure you make the right choices for me. If I'm going to enable someone to be a licensed reseller of my solutions that we work so hard for, but I'm going to make sure I walk them through a very detailed process through the recruiting process to enrolling them as a partner, making sure I onboard them and they have access to all the systems they need to be successful. I'm going to go through an enablement period where I do live and one-to-one, one-to-many, webinar-based and portal-based sales and sales engineer training. I want to enable them with the scoping tools they need to talk to the customer, understand what their objectives are, and then map those objectives into a scoping document that ultimately produces a sale and a price. That's that's what the customer is looking for. And then you don't want to get locked in. So you offer one-year contracts, three-year contracts, but at the end of the day, you want to ensure that your customer success team, which we have a deep bench of here, is having regular touch points with those customers, making sure they're getting value out of the solution. And I know you have a lot to say about that. It's one of your core roles around here is client value. Yeah, I think... There's some confusion too, as well, is that we use partners in order to be able to use and deliver our services. 
those partners use us to help deliver their services to their customers. So there's a partnership in which we're able to leverage each other's skill sets to going into an environment. Um, coming out of Booz Allen Hamilton, the team is very technical in nature. 21% of deep seas now is veterans or military background, intelligence or military background. So that's a significant number of people who are very mission focused or really focused on customer and client delivery. We knew that's the end goal. That's that's who we work for as is the customer. And when we do that, we have to partner with leading technology vendors. We don't develop our own SIM systems. We don't develop our own intrusion detection tools. In the past, when I was first coming up in cyber and incident response, it was we used a lot of open source tools and we had to write a lot of scripts and write the file and pull it back and parse it in and so forth. Now you have enterprise tools that do a lot of that. And so you don't have to spend your time with the collection of data and the searching of data. You can spend all your time in the analysis of data. What does this mean? Is this really a threat? Is this a false positive? Do I need to do a containment? That's what we're all trying to get to. Right. And to do that, you have to have the right technology platforms. You have to have it in a way that allows you to be successful. It has to be able to run on the platforms that you need to support. If you're running an EDR product and you need to be able to support Linux, for instance, you need to ensure you have a product that, that supports the flavors that you're having. And not to not think about that ahead of time. Uh, there's sort of certain EDRs that run on mobile platforms that others don't. So understanding your asset inventory is always important. But then it's really interesting. You can buy all these products and tools, or you can buy a whole set of instruments like a guitar, drums, so forth. It doesn't allow you to actually create music. Each individual instrument has to be tuned. They have to work together. It's the same way in a managed service provider. Those companies that have had breaches in the past, normally it's because there's some combination of vendor management that's poorly put together. There wasn't enough focus on configuration management and hygiene internally. A lot of times it's the simplest thing that gets them. And I just see where when you're leveraging partners and you get the right solution for the right partner, because Mike, you and I look at partners, not to, hey, how can I get into a sales perspective over here, but, but how can I deliver a packaged offering between the two technologies and provide some better solution that we find bad, quicker, faster, better? And when we have that mentality, we know that sales are just going to come along with it. It's just natural progression. I think you're noticing that too as well. And we focus on fixing the problem set that, that we have, that that always just propels us in the right direction. Yeah, I have a great story to tell you that just happened recently that kind of ties in a lot of what you just mentioned. We had a lead come in off our website. It was a partner that resells one of our main competitors, Arctic Wolf, and for whatever reason, I won't go into a lot of details, but they were evaluating alternatives. And they came to us and said, we like what we see here. Can we get a demo? I did that demo. Got them super excited because of the capabilities we delivered and some basic features like data access reporting and alerting and just proving that we're doing the job you're paying us to do. They liked that we could show all of that to them in a short demo. First, really first or second meeting I had with them. And they came to me with a secondary solution and said, we like what we see here. Will you guys integrate with the EDR we deployed to our 100 plus customers? I took that EDR, which was not on the Deep Seas approved list, over to our product management and threat detection engineering team and said, evaluate this one. I might get 100 customers and a new partner out of this if you're willing to take this on. And after some evaluation, a meeting with that vendor's executives that I set up, uh, Deep Seas said, look, it's not one of our supported EDRs. 
It'll take additional software deployment on the customer side. It'll take some um, man hours, some professional services, labor hours to make this solution work. Why don't you consider one of our approved EDRs, right? Sentinel One, Carbon Black, Microsoft Defender, others. And that partner turned me down and said, no, we'll just stick with Arctic Wolf and, and that other EDR tool. But that's a case of where we weren't a good fit. And, but you know what? It was a red flag for us as deep seas because how can we commit to doing the threat detection and response mission that your, our customers are paying us for with a tool that was not capable of doing the job, right? We stuck to our guns and said we wouldn't do it. So I respect that. And I think the community would respect that. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. There's a saying we have uh, at Booz Island was courageous authenticity. So it was the ability to, to, to power in these situations, what, what works, what doesn't. And we've seen nine times out of 10, the company will make decisions, will make decisions of what's in the best interest of the company, not what's in the best interest of our sales or anything related to that. Because in the end, we are essentially the attorney, the uh, the counsel for our customers, and they rely on us to make very critical situations in the worst time period. I do notice when we, I'm incident commander and I'm running some of these big IRs, the customer's normally in panic. They don't understand what's happening. All their servers are locked up with ransomware. This last one had a ransom threat that was sent and it printed out the ransom letter on all the printers. It was like 30 some odd printers. I ate up all the paper, freaked out the entire staff. And yeah, it was a major incident. And in that incident is when you make mistakes. It's your servers are the ones that are down. What am I supposed to do? And all those emotions and everything get in the way. And when we came in, it was Tuesday. It was just what we do. It's not, it wasn't that big of a deal. And we were just used to handling cyber events like when this occurs. And I guess that level of calm allows us to make decisions on behalf of our customers or give them great guidance that we're not impacted by the emotions of the situation. We've gone through this a number of different times. And I think that's what you want to be able to solve when you're in those bad situations. Many different IRs I saw go from manageable to absolute disaster because they handled it poorly. They made it worse than it was. It could have easily have been contained. All it took was a couple of steps. <laughs> and instead, you have a true disaster on your hands. And I think being able to be there where our customers need it, having the right solution, quick, fast. Like one of them, if you remember our customer, they had an insurance policy for a breach and they actually weren't even a customer at the time. They were just a contact person that we knew. And they had a ransomware attack and their insurance provider wasn't calling them back. The security company they hired didn't call them back. The MSP didn't call them back. They're three hours into this and nobody is, they're not able to get in touch with anybody. And here we were on the phone and had an IR analyst that were sitting waiting to jump on uh, to, uh, to as well. So I think having that mentality of the firefighter, we're there when we get the call, it's really helped out. And it's really hard, not when you're deep seas, you're a new brand. They don't know where I came from, Booz Allen Hamilton. We were part of the commercial division of a big defense contractor. We do very highly technical, very in-depth cybersecurity engineering services. But how do you display that? How do people know that? What are they getting into when you got a new brand? So it's always. Yeah, it's story. It's storytelling. I have another one. I was I got a phone call. The sun wasn't even up yet. It was a CEO of one of our vendor partners. And he's Mike. I've got a, a buddy across the state who was hit with ransomware last night. He's in a pinch. It's spreading laterally and he needs some help. And I'm at full, I'm at full capacity right now. Can you guys jump in? 
I called one of our product leaders who put me in touch with our IR provider. And within that first hour, I had that CEO of the company across the state in touch with some advice in hand saying, don't negotiate with the threat actors. Make sure your backups are offline. Don't use your corporate email for communications. Just giving him the basic 101. I've just been hit by ransomware messaging. And then by noon of that day, had a contract for an IR team in place. And by five o'clock that night, Deep Seas had deployed our endpoint protection software across that environment to assist that IR team that was deployed. Within 30, 40 days, that incident was totally resolved. And Deep Seas was able to sign that customer up to a, a one-year contract to continue that managed EDR service on behalf of that customer to, to ensure that IR event doesn't happen again. And you know that referral that came to me was from, like I said, just one of my vendor partners. He didn't get anything out of that other than securing that customer and future relationships by helping someone that was in need and calling the right person who got him to the right people. So that's what partnering is all about. Yeah, and, and that's the key to it. And that's why you, even if you have the most most cutting edge cybersecurity tools out there, unless you had the right people that had them implemented properly, knew what to do with them and knew what the information when it came back meant, you, it's useless. It doesn't matter. It's the same way with your partners. If you have the wrong ecosystem or you have the wrong delivery in one area and you're fragmented, then it's just horrible. I've been in some of these big farmers as the Cyber Fusion Center lead. And in this one case, we had this IP address we needed to track down, malicious intent. We have to call the infrastructure team that was managing it. And it's a big, big consultant company. You would definitely know the name of it. And when you call them up, it was like a warehouse of IP addresses. Just tell me the IP address you want to know. I, I don't know when anything changed with it. I don't know anything about it. I'll go look it up in this system. And you just felt like you walked into Walmart asking for a particular product and nobody cares. They just look it up from some skew. And there was just this lack of really knowing my environment, knowing what I needed to do. And it slowed everything down. And then you can see where somebody who really knew the CMDB, they knew where their assets were. When something popped up and we were in the middle of active IR, they knew that IP. They knew where to go look at it as they knew that environment. And not having the right vendors and using one for infrastructure, one for security, where the two don't talk to each other, nor do they allow each other to log into each other's portal because they're competitors on other contracts. So you think you're saving money by doing one vendor in their multi-solution in one area and then doing another. Let's just say you do data leak protection and you do compliance to one vendor and then you do bit pen testing through another but the pen testing team doesn't give access to the op people or to the network engineering team because they're a different solution it just becomes an absolute mess and i think there has to be a management philosophy of taking these and breaking these into core operating capabilities like managed detection and response is one company and it handles things up to this point and it handles even if it's multiple vendors or whatever it's still the functional lead for this. But what have you seen where I've seen disasters where they don't come together too well, but where have you seen where some come together and done pretty well? Yeah. So especially in the era we're in and an industry I'm very familiar with, the managed service provider industry. For many years, we told everyone that we did security and we did network and we did servers and we did storage and we did cloud and all of that as one managed service provider. But you got to understand that the same knock is typically running all of that. And especially if they don't outsource their SOC and their MDR to someone like us, 
the, there's a big capabilities gap. Recently, we had a, a partner I'm working with that had one of their customers go through a, an IR breach. And because they were the managed services provider for that victim of the breach, we treated them as the end customer. So we worked with their team as if they were the, the people that were running the business because it, in, in a nutshell, they basically are, right? They are providing the IT services. They didn't have the skills to prevent or contain that active threat, but they knew who to call, right? They had an MDR provider that knew that they knew that would treat them as if they were the end customer. And at the end of the day, that gets the, the victim reestablished and through that breach because they had a partner ecosystem of uh, MSP and MDR provider. So that's a recent thing I've learned is that the MSPs need a dedicated MBR provider. So I've tasked my team with going out and offering our services to every MSP that kind of matches that ideal partner profile I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. Um, Boy, have I seen that a failure where you have MSPs that say they do security and then don't know what they're doing. And they believe security is just firewall management and permissions maybe on, on a server. And they cross the boundaries of security just enough to say they do security. And then, oops, we don't do security when there's an incident and it's a disaster. I, I can't tell you how many times it's happened. I thought my MSP was providing that. And then they would say, no, we don't provide cyber defense management. Or we provide IT services. Why didn't you say that before? They would fill in the gap in order not to have a competitor come in. I think the key is when we're a pure cyber, like we don't do IT. Deep Seas would pass on an IT job in a second. If you said, Josh, do you have some guys that can build 15 servers for us as part of this contract? And we said, yeah, we have the skill sets to do it, but we don't have the services to do it. We don't do it because that's not something we're into cyber only. So I think we that's where we work with them. Is sometimes you just have to define the line and say, this is in the cyber realm. If you're an MSP, this would be in there. And we noticed that for my firewall management. So deep seas, we do the firewall management services. And so we manage your Fortinet, your Palo Alto, your Checkpoint, your ASA. And the reason for that has just been a huge shift in that service is philosophically. I remember when this happened, cybersecurity, we used to own the firewalls. And they were a security device. And then before you know it, the outsourcing to the network infrastructure providers and so forth, firewalls became your router. And so as long as you had the initial configuration was done years ago by some cybersecurity guy, they're going to take over and do change management of it. And it just becomes a router, essentially. And so they don't use it as a security device. And you wouldn't think about, let me strip out ports this way. Let me filter for more ports and harden it this way. Completely different philosophy. Cybersecurity teams have learned that this is hurting them. We're having misconfigured firewalls. We're having issues with it. We just had LockBit 3.0 ransomware hit from a compromised Fortinet firewall that hadn't been updated in two years. There was an actual vulnerability on the SSL encryptors side of it, which if exploited properly allowed arbitrary code to run on the Fortinet firewall. And so they gave you access into the customer's network from the internet. So really bad and it was breached and they had full access into it. And some of the things could have prevented some of the configuration could have helped prevented some of the exploitation, but there's this consolidated move to start taking cybersecurity people to start managing firewalls again. So that whole movement that said, move firewalls from cybersecurity people, they can trap, they can focus on incident response and post-exploitation and move that to the infrastructure guys. 
you're noticing their philosophy is causing security incidents on the front. So it's moving back to security teams. And that's why we've been so involved. So we'll take our incident response team and make sure they're communicating with our firewall management team to say, these are these firewalls ought to be set up. This is what how. And so we see that cross action happening. I think we should do it more than what's happening. But are you seeing those forces as well? So that was one that was relatively new to me. I thought I thought a firewall would get regular patches from NMSP. And when you hear that it needs a little more attention and it needs threat detection and, and built into it. And that's what we provide as an MDR provider. We know what's happening out there. I think the number we throw out there is 2,500 custom threat detections go into the platforms we use as an MDR provider. And those MSPs do not have the bandwidth to be generating their own threat detections and applying those to the end firewalls. And we do, because that's all we do. One other thing I wanted your opinion on, I think is really changing in our partner ecosystem and the space in general is, and it's funny because I grew up in the SIM space, right? Logarithm, IBM Q radar, Secure Onyx, wow, back to Cisco Mars. Yeah. And the concept that a SIM and an EDR and a firewall management and maybe a patch management program is enough to protect you from today's threats. How do you feel about that? Because I believe we've all kind of grown up in the space that the SIM was the answer. And the SIM is not the answer, in my opinion. With perfect correlation rules and a bunch of detections built in, maybe it can help accomplish the mission. But honestly, they don't do a good job of that. So I know it's the Deep Sea's opinion that EDR and managed endpoint high fidelity alerting is the number one thing to come into the threat platform for analysts to, to do their job. Do you agree with that? Do you think SIMS hoodwinked us through the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think they hoodwinked them. It's just the promise of it did not come through as we thought. And it's some of our fault. Cybersecurity people were of the opinion, or they were going along with IT's opinion. It just throw all the data into the SIM, and then the SIM will somehow figure it out. And when you find out, no, it doesn't, just figure it out. It's a lot more cost prohibitive than we thought. All of a sudden, your spike is going through, the license usage is going up, you're not getting any benefits of it. And so what we saw is just the SIM has its place, but when you architect it wrong as far as it's your logging strategy for you and it is your post-exploitation hunt strategy for you, then yes, those are falling on, on their face. And so there's this, what we did at several big pharmaceuticals is we had a tier one data is going to be those high fidelity alert generating devices such as the EDR products that you're talking about. You have the EDR products on the desktop. That's the edge you want to focus on because that's where most of the threats are occurring is right there on that desktop. The other stool to that is you want to have a network-based intrusion detection system. There's threats that you're not going to see that are not host-based, such as IoT devices, routers, switches, OT systems. Hell, even your air conditioner now has an IP address where you can remote control it. These are really uh, juicy targets for threat actors because there's no security software generally installed in it and they can communicate with the internet and can cause some serious problems. So you have to be able to do that. Log4j was something that's not detected on an EDR platform, only at the network level. So it's important to, to have that. And the only way to do full network capture of what's going in out, out your network is to have that network intrusion detection system. And then that third leg that you always want to have is logs that, that come in, the ability to search them. And not necessarily in the SIM is going to say, I want these log sources. This is the use case, and I want to alert when this happens. 
But trying to get everything that is possibly bad to alert is a nightmare in itself right there. But using having a good logging strategy first, that's the key here. Most people think the first thing to do is think about a SIM. That's really the last thing to think about. The first thing to think about is what are your assets that generate event data that I need to do something about? Everything has a logging source level from a Cisco router facility level to uh, what's being logged on a host. When you access a file, you can get very robust. It can get very general in which nothing gets recorded. So having hardening guidelines and standards for what a device, how it should be configured, and what's its logging strategy is critical. So that would get stamped on, let's say, a thousand Cisco routers. This would be your default configuration. It puts some ACLs around the VTY access list. It does some enable secret stuff. It hardens some of the the devices and the interfaces. That's something you want to push out globally. You want to make sure everything meets that standard. And it's the very same way. Most of the breaches we see is usually on devices that are non-standard. Somehow they drifted. They're not being patched anymore. Sometimes it didn't have EDR. The last one we did, they were uninstalling EDR. So they had malicious scripts to uninstall CrowdStrike. And they did it in some cases. What they didn't have is it configured properly when they installed it where there would be an alert that that this triggered. This event of this process was trying to kill, somebody tried to kill the EDR, and we would have received the, the log on it, but there was no logging solution there. So when the EDR CrowdStrike got disabled on the host, of course, you didn't know anything about it. And unless you're sitting in the console looking and saying, oh, we've had 600, 632 clients yesterday, now I have 631, you're not going to catch that. You're not going to, you're not going to see that. So those are some of those kind of lessons learned that I think are critical. I do love my SIM partners, and we have several that matter to us. I think the best way I've heard someone around here say it is we use SIM for surgical use cases and certainly for cloud use cases, places where agents can't be installed and network sens- sensors are difficult. Use cases, I think, are great in the SIM. Authentication use cases, yeah. Perfect. All right. But I also see where... So the tier one data was okay to go into the SIM, which is that real-time detection stuff. But tier two, for instance, is firewall logs. We need to be able to use those for hunting operations to be able to look back and to see things. That's great. I don't need to put that in a SIM system. I don't need to eat up expensive SIM resources for that. I can put that in a low-cost logging solution. So first, I've identified what should be logged locally on the host. I've identified that I need to send these logs off of the target. What's the first thing the attackers do? They wipe out the logs on the local system. When that happens, you have no idea what occurred prior to the compromise. So what you want to be able to do is essentially when that event occurs on that local host, that event gets sent off to a central logging facility, such as a syslog server, and you have it recorded. And you can hunt and search for that, and you can have these tool sets that are really good. ThreatWatch is an example of something that can search through these logs when needed. But the correlation detection of that is is something that is best done in a SIM for much more limited use case. We need to stop using the SIM for everything because that does not work. So logging solution, quick logging platform for post-exploitation, searching and hunt, separate that from SIM, limit what you put into the SIM, maybe concentrate on authentication use cases the most on that. Those need some high-speed correlation that happens. And then, yeah, use cheap storage for the other stuff, S3 butter or another type format. I got a question back to you, Josh, on the back to the partner topic specifically when you're evaluating an MDR provider to put a test out there. How are they, how well are they doing at stopping 
attacks in the wild. We have a partnership on Defend with their blind spot tool. I think they call it breach and attack simulation. Can you tell the users a little bit about that? Yeah. And so we definitely have a service called breach attack simulation. We use a product called blind spot through on defend out of Jacksonville, Florida. They have a great platform that allows us to infuse our trade craft and our ability to execute, for instance, the TTPs that common ransomware providers uh, launch on machines and it tests to make sure your controls are working, that the logs make it all the way back and gestures aren't broke, that kind of stuff. And so they definitely have some hot technology that they've been using. So we definitely think you ought to, ought to check them out. And using partner deliver services is something critical to what we do. And, and it's been exciting having you on the show here, Mike. I think we covered a lot of great areas. We covered on partner ecosystem. How do you want to be able to kind of structure when you're looking at partners, what's important to deliver these different services? You're going to have to deal with this if you're an enterprise CISO or you're the director of operations for any kind of enterprise. You're going to have to deal with multiple customers and multiple delivery methodologies. So it really helps to understand who do you partner with, who do you don't partner with, and how these solutions kind of work. And those that have good, high-quality multi-vendor solutions that maybe has one for the enterprise level, one for the mid-market, you could tell, thought this out. And that's what we do. We I generally work with Mike and a lot of the team members, and we look at solving problems from our customers and using a combination. It's got the, the best tools for the right situation. And then, Mike, what seems to be a real trend before we sign off, as I'm noticing, is that tool validation and kind of rationalization. People are trying to say, I got too many tools. I want to get rid of some things. What work, what don't. And I think there's all kinds of strategies to help with that. So, right? Yep, absolutely. And then if anybody had come to this podcast to kind of understand some best practices in su- cyber supply chain risk ma- management, how well do your su- su- suppliers vet themselves and personnel and how do vendors vet their service providers? That's certainly a hot topic in our industry too. But NIST has a great white paper and some guidelines on that. So feel free to hit up NIST.gov and check out the best practices in the cyber supply chain as well. Yeah, and this go all into that supply chain. People don't think about it, but how do you deliver cybersecurity? You're a company, you deliver what it is you do. You don't have to know cybersecurity, but there's people that know how to put it all together and give you the outcomes you need. So, man, really appreciate you being on the show, Mike. Look forward to a, another follow-up. And for the audience here, don't forget to hit that like button, hit subscribe, and put in some comments. We've hit, I think we're coming up to 4,800 downloads now of the show. Um, one of the things Mike was talking about was at RSA, and it was just really exciting how many people wanted to be on it. They want to talk about cybersecurity and different things. So you'll see some other people coming up here uh, pretty soon. So thank you for your time, and everybody stay secure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.